you for um, gathering us this morning. Um, certainly a little bit of a cost to us to get up and um, to be here, to put our energy into this, and um, uh, very small in comparison to what you've given us, the grace that you give us, and, and opening your word together, singing together as men. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that, that you would give us grace, not because we got up early, not because um, we did a lot of things, maybe had a quiet time or prayed this morning, but because you love us, and you're good, and you love to be generous to your children. And so we pray that you would teach us this morning from your word, in Christ's name, amen. So if this is your first time with us, welcome. Um, We're going through the Proverbs this semester. We have a couple weeks left. And um, the way that we're doing this is we're sort of uh, looking at, at this point in our study at least, some uh, major topics that the Proverbs address in terms of inculcating wisdom for us as men. And we find ourselves this morning and next week uh, on the subject of work, the topic of work. We're going to be looking at what the Proverbs has to say about our work. And this morning specifically, we're going to look at what it means to be diligent in our work. What does it mean to be diligent in our work? So I need to tell you this this morning before we get started. When I use the word work this morning, I'm going to use it in its broadest sense to refer more to what you happen to do in exchange for an income. Um, so you'll see it even as the, the, uh, the writer of Proverbs deslibe, describes the sluggard. The sluggard is even sluggardly in his work of eating. <laughs> and so I mean work in the broadest sense. That which God has given you to do as a man. As husbands, as fathers, as friends, as neighbors. Everything that he has, he has set before you to do, called you to do. How is it that we cultivate and grow in diligence in our work? So recently, my oldest son, uh, uh, his name's John Randall, he was seven at the time. He was reading his favorite magazine. It's once a month, Sports Illustrated for Kids. And the cover article at that, that issue was on Kevin Durant. And he was in his room reading about Kevin Durant, and he came into the kitchen, kind of shaking his head and looking down, and he, he threw the magazine down, and, and he said, Mom, this is talking to my wife, he said, Mom, I can really relate to Kevin Durant. And, you know, that's an invitation for a conversation. So she said, you know, well, how so, son? And he said, well, you know, we both had to overcome a lot of hardship to get where we are today. (laughs) Now, two things. I don't know where he thinks he is today. I don't know what that even means. Uh, But two, just um, before you judge him, he he doesn't have to walk a a full block to school, both there and back, um, twice a day. So it's a little bit like Kevin Durant, you know, who grew up in urban D.C. Um, with a single mother who had to work multiple jobs uh, just to, to pay rent. So use your imagination, and of course he did. Um, so he felt like, you know, this was a guy that he could really relate to. Um, I wonder if you growing up, if you had figures that you looked up to. Uh, figures that you looked up to when you were growing up. Um, my kids have a very narrow palate at this point. It's like only athletes, and the athletes that they sort of look up to, the jerseys that they wear, are my oldest son's favorite is Tom Brady. He, he'll, he's not discriminatory. He'll wear it to church, his jersey to church. Um, uh, Peyton Manning, my second son. Um, Kevin Durant. They almost never are concerned with, like, the, the backup nose tackle for Tennessee, whatever his name is, or um, Brandon Whedon, who sounds, you know, seems like a nice guy and all for the Cowboys. Um, but they are consumed with connecting themselves to excellence. 
they want to be around people. They want to emulate people. They want to connect with people who have risen to the top of what they do. I wonder if you've ever experienced the feeling of wanting to connect with greatness. Let me ask you a question before we begin this morning. Do you think ambition is good? Is ambition good? Um, is ambition, is the desire for greatness, is it healthy? The reason I want you to think about that is because I don't think it's uh, maybe obvious to us. I think almost that ambition has become a dirty word uh, in Christian circles today. It feels like something we need to apologize for or something we should be ashamed for, but it's not always been the case. Um, maybe you've heard of the seven deadly sins. Have you heard of the seven deadly sins before? Well, um, they were first called the seven capital sins. Uh, the word capital comes from a Latin word that means head or source, and they were called that because the early Christians said, look, if you can get at these, if you can sort of attack these, then what you're doing is attacking the root of all the other sins. These were thought to be the sins from which all the other things emerged. And by the way, as a fun aside, do you know where the seven deadly sins came from? Well, at least one of the sources were the Proverbs. Yeah, so you'll see different lists in the Proverbs go something like this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that he abhors, and it'll give you a list of seven things. So those sort of seven, those lists of sevens, along with like the deeds of the flesh from Galatians, this is where the Christian church said, look for discipleship to teach people how to live. Let's settle on something we can get our arms around. And that's how the early church sort of settled on sins. But among those seven sins is Acadia or, um, or slothfulness. Laziness isn't a really good way to say it, but it's really slothfulness. And opposite all the seven sins, the Christian church also taught the capital virtues. So the capital virtues were the character traits that a person was supposed to cultivate in the place of those vices. And the character trait that was to be cultivated in opposition to slothfulness was magnanimity. Magnanimity. We don't use that word a lot. What does it mean? Magnanimity is the expansion of the soul towards great things. Magnanimity meant taking ownership of the nobility that God had given a person as a, as a, as a bearer of his own image. In a word, magnanimity was ambition that had been rightly ordered. So that in the early church, slothfulness uh, was seen as falling asleep. It was falling asleep on the dignity that God had given you. It was falling asleep on the reality that God had actually made a person for great things. Yes, ambition often is. It always has been. It often is bad. It is not hard for you to imagine, right, ambition that goes awry. You can think of a million ways that's happened. But the magnanimous man was the man who was ambitious for the kingdom of God. And for that, the early church offered no apologies. There's a proverb that's not on your sheet this morning that goes like this. Do you see a man who is skilled in his work? You see a man who is skilled in his work. Uh, he will serve before kings. He will not serve in obscurity. And that's magnanimity. The magnanimity is the desire to serve before kings. So that by the fruit of your own hands, the diligent work of your own hands, a lot of other people could be blessed. We're going to read a few uh, selections about diligence this morning from the Proverbs. I just want you to remember as we do so that we are made as men and women, but as men 
this morning. We are made in the image of a God who is supremely ambitious. Just think about that for a moment. Like God wants everything. He wants everything. He wants all of the world alongside of you. And he will, he will stop at nothing, including the sending and the giving of his own son, to get it. God himself is ambitious, rightly ordered. And ambition and diligence, rightly ordered, is a blessing, not a curse. Let's read a selection of Proverbs now that gives us a contrast between that, the man who is diligent, and the man who is, as the proverb says, a sluggard. The diligent and the slothful. So we're going to start with Proverbs 13.4. I'm not sure the order on your sheet. Proverbs 13.4 to begin, then we'll move to 26.12 through 16, and then chapter 21. Proverbs 13.4 says this, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 26, this is when you get a rare selection, uh, a compilation of Proverbs that are on the same subject here on being a sluggard. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for him, for a fool than for him, excuse me. The sluggard says there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And in Proverbs 21, 25 through 26, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. So one of the things that, that uh, Paul talked about a few weeks ago, that when you read through the Proverbs, you, you sort of meet a lot of characters. Um, one of the characters that you sort of meet at every turn is the character of the diligent. The diligent man is a character you meet. And he comes to us in contrast to the sluggard, And the idea here is that we should look at the diligent man. He's always positive. He's always spoken positively of. We should look at the diligent man and want to cultivate what he has in our own lives. And so two simple questions for us to answer this morning as men as we look at this. Number one, what is diligence? It would be a big win if we could just arrive at a pretty clear understanding of what diligence actually looks like in our lives. What is diligence? And then number two, how is it that we actually cultivate it? What is it and how do we get it? First, what is diligence? I want to do two things here to answer that question. First, I want to give you a clear definition of diligence, and then I want to qualify that because it's not as clear as it should be <laughs> to us, okay? Uh, a clear definition and qualify for even more clarity. The clear definition is this. Diligence is pretty simple. It's, it's deep engagement in what God has given you to do. So diligence is deep engagement. Deep engagement in what God has called you to do. Now, that work doesn't have to be like, Uh, work that you would uh, initially look at and consider important. If God has called you to fill out a sales report, it means you're diligent in the way that you fill out the sales report. If God has called you to return an email, then you do that well. If God has called you to wash dishes after a meal, then you do that well. If God has called you to play with your kids, then you're present at home, playing with your kids, doing what he has called you to do in a deep way. The idea here is that the wise diligent man doesn't go through the motions and get things done just to check them off a list. He doesn't do the minimum to get by. He engages himself in his work fully, and he aims for excellence. Okay, let me give you a picture of this. Did anyone here, was anyone here forced 
under the hands of your parents, the harsh hands of your parents, to pull weeds growing up? Yes? Okay. So you have a lot in common with Kevin Durant, too. You know, you <laughs> suffered in a harsh way. So, so I, one of the things I had to do growing up is pull dandelions. I, I absolutely abhor dandelions. And, um, you know, there are two ways to, to pick dandelions. Really only one right way, but there's two ways to get them, right? The first way is what? You just pick them. Sort of lop the top off. You pick a dandelion, what happens that way? It comes back. Yeah, you know, blowing the seeds everywhere, and that one just comes back, and the reason it comes back is obvious. You've never pulled it up, back, up by the root. The right way to pick a dandelion, to pick a weed, is to actually go in and to take up the dandelion by the root. Now, it is frustrating because they just they tear off so easy, right? But the right way to do it is to actually come and to kill the dandelion. That's what diligence is in all of your work. Diligence is aiming for the right you to do and top in order to give the appearance of a job well done. Diligence is aiming for the roots. Deep engagement with, God, with what God has given us to do. Now let me qualify it this way. This is very important. In the Bible, in the Proverbs, diligence is not the same thing as busyness. Okay? Diligence is not the same thing as busyness. It's an extremely important distinction. A busy man is not necessarily a diligent man. In fact, I'm going to go a step further by implication of our own definition this morning and say this, workaholism, over-busying yourself with your occupation, is not only not a mark of diligence, it's actually a mark of laziness. Why? Because what the workaholic fails to do is he fails to engage deeply in his full vocation as a man. What he does is he attacks the roots at work, Often, sometimes he doesn't even do that, but he attacks the roots at work and he's lopping off the top everywhere else. In his, in his family, as a husband, as a friend, as a neighbor, he's just lopping off the top of the dandelions everywhere else. The diligent man is different from the busy man. And that here's the distinction. The diligent man knows how to focus. The diligent man knows how to bring focus to his life. And that means that he has the courage to say no to all the things that he could do in order to say yes and to give himself fully to the things that God has called him to do. Let me ask you a question this morning. Men, are you always busy? That's not a virtue. <laughs> we say it like it's a good thing. You know, yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> are you always busy? I'm talking to myself this morning. Look, I recognize that there will be seasons in your life that you have to, that you have to sprint. You're in a dead sprint. Is busyness always in season for you? Is it never out of season? <laughs> busyness always in season for you. Listen to me. Busyness is not a characteristic of the wise. Because busyness derails our capacity to give deep attention to the most important things that God has called us to do. Busyness is actually the enemy of diligence. I read a, a book... Um, Recently, I don't recommend a lot of books because it just busies us, you know, but I will recommend this one. Um, it's called The Rest of God, and it doesn't mean like the remainder of God, like all the, all the stuff you haven't heard from the Bible. It means instead the, the rest that God gives us, okay? 
Uh, in the book, the author tells a story about his wife's grandmother, whose name's Alice. One day, Alice is in her backyard, and she's uh, polishing this large stone. And the reason she's polishing this stone in her garden is because she's tried, and the, she can't get the stone out of her garden. It's just too big for her. So she says, look, can't move the stone, so I'm going to make it beautiful. I'm going to make it the centerpiece of my garden. And so she's got sandpaper and stone in order to take away the dullness and to make it shine a little bit. Well, she rubs the stone. She's getting more than she bargained for. She notices that a, a thin sifting of gold begins to appear on the face of the stone. It's important for story that you know that she um, lived in Canada, in British Columbia, uh, at the time when everyone was going to British Columbia from all over um, with gold fever. <laughs> and so uh, she saw the caking of gold dust, and her own heart started to race, even though she was always frowning upon people who would do that. She sort of caught it herself, and her heart started racing, and she started scrubbing harder and harder and harder. And, and all of a sudden, before she knew it, she was putting her whole body into it. I mean, she was scrubbing the stone as hard as she could, and more and more and more gold was appearing on the stone. And finally, she stopped to catch her breath. And that's what she noticed. There was something wrong with her wedding ring. Um, the, the top of the ring was intact, but the bottom was razor thin as a wire. Plus, what she had happened, what had happened, nearly sanded her wedding ring off. And so all the gold that had appeared on the stone were the filings from her ring. The gold was the remnants of her heirloom. As the author is telling the story, he says, I laughed at first imagining the picture, but then he writes the following. In my own life, I've repeated again and again Grandma Alice's mistake. I've squandered treasures in pursuit of dust. Here are a few. All the times I never swam in a cool lake with my own children, made a snowman or baked sugar cookies with them, lingered in bed with my wife on a Saturday morning, or helped a friend in need, all because I was in a hurry to, and he cuts himself off, well, that's just it, I don't remember what. Someone asked me recently what was the biggest regret in my life, and I told them being in a hurry. Getting to the next thing without fully engaging the thing right in front of me. I cannot think of a single advantage I've gained from being in a hurry. But I can think of a thousand missed and broken things, tens of thousands, that lie in the wake of all my rushing. He concludes it saying this, he says, through all my haste, I thought I was making up time. It turns out I was throwing it away. Wow. <laughs> Anybody not feel convicted by that a little bit? What a challenge. I think as I even read that, it's a sobering passage that needs to be tempered with this hope. The Lord is not only redeeming us, he is redeeming lost time, too. If you've lost time, if you've squandered time, God is in the business of, of getting it all back. You know, there's a great passage in Joel that says that God is able to restore the years the locusts have eaten. That means all the years the locusts have eaten away in your life that you squandered away, even when the locusts were eating, uh, when you weren't paying attention, <laughs> when you weren't even watching. But I tell you that as you move forward in your life from today, I want you to feel the weight of this distinction that there is a difference. There is a difference between being busy, being in a hurry, and being a man who is diligent. And not just a difference, but it is being in a hurry. It is, it is busyness that is often the great enemy of doing things with great depth that God has, in fact, called us to do.
he goes on to say this, and this is one of the questions that's on your handout this morning. He says this, one measure for whether or not you're engaged enough, whether or not you're diligent enough, besides falling asleep in board meetings, is to ask yourself this question. How much do I still care about the things that I should care about? Good question. How much do I really care about the things that I care about? And he goes on to say, when we lose concern for people, both the lost and the found, when we lose concern for friendship, for truth and beauty and goodness, when we cease to laugh with our children when they laugh and and instead tell them to quiet down, or weep when our spouses weep and instead wish they wouldn't get so emotional, when we hear news of trouble among our neighbors and our first thought is, I hope it's not going to involve me, when we stop caring about the things that we should care about, that's a signal that we're too busy. We have let our hearts be consumed by the things that feed the ego but starve the soul. Then he ends this way, busyness kills the heart. Busyness kills the heart. And the reason I want to end that way is just because, at least in this part, is because that's where real diligence comes from. <laughs> so I want you to see that real diligence is a fully engaged heart. Real diligence is a fully engaged affection, a mind, a will, things that God has given you to do. And that means that you're able to say no or to let go of the things that God has not called you to bear and to carry. That's diligence, the diligent man. So number two, now practical, how do we cultivate it? How do we become men who are characterized as diligent men in the, in the work that God has given us to do? Well, just, just by way of a little bit of a, a commentary, there are, really, there are really two ways to cultivate any virtue of your life. If you want to be courageous or temperate or anything else, um, there are two ways to do that. Number one is to, uh, by the formation of your habits. Um, in other words, you, you, you ch- so if you want to be courageous, you, you choose behaviors. This is not like rocket science here, right? <laughs> you choose behaviors that are characteristic of a courageous man. Like you, you will your way towards courage. That, that's, a, you know, um, if you want to be temperate, you do the things that a temperate man would do. The second way is about, about the formation of our hearts. We start having the affections and the desires and the eyes to see the imagination for beauty and for temperance and for courage, okay? Now, what I want you to know this morning is we often see those things as different. The Bible keeps those things together. It says aim for both. Aim for the habits of diligence. Aim for the habits of love, but also aim for the heart. You'll get both. So uh, C.S. Lewis has this, this passage. I can't remember which book it's in where he says this. You know, sometimes we hug our children because we love them, right? I mean, we do that, right? Sometimes we hug our children because we love them. Then he says this, sometimes... We hug our children in order to love them. And his point is this. You don't wait to love your children in order to inculcate the habits of love because what you realize in doing that is that hugging your children, habitually doing things that are loving will actually pull your affections along. Okay? Does that make sense? So we cultivate habits and we cultivate the heart both at once. What are the habits of diligence? Let me give you four this morning fairly briefly that comes from, um, come from our passage Here are the four habits. First, the diligent man begins things. Very simple. (laughs) The diligent man is a man who begins things. He begins things. Look at me at verse 14, chapter 26. This will be in contrast to the sluggard. Verse 14 says this, As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. And the idea here is that um, when it's time to get up and to do the work that's available to him, now, I want, that, that's, a, that's an extremely important caveat here, the work that's available to him. It's not like this man is out of work, he's looking for work. This is not talking about a man 
who is looking for work, who is out of work and can't find work. It's talking about a man who has work available to him and he won't do it. So what does he do instead? When it's time to get up for work, he hits snooze on his phone. And he turns back over. And he does it over and over and over again. So here, the diligent man is the opposite. And what is the opposite? The diligent man does not procrastinate. Any procrastinators in the room? I think I know, I mean, I know, I have a friend that does this all the time. You know, I don't know anyone personally, but he does not procrastinate. He doesn't wait. And the idea here is that we're to cultivate the habit of not putting off what God's given us to do today. Do what he's put in front of you. Do it. Start it. If he's called you, don't procrastinate. Number two, the diligent man finishes things. The diligent man is a man who begins things. The diligent man is also a man who finishes things. So look at verse 15 with me. It says, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. This is what y'all laughed at when I read it. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Okay, so like he can even start eating, but he can't finish his food because he gets so tired. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting. If you read all the little Proverbs on the sluggard, they're almost all hyperbolic, and they're kind of funny. And there are two reasons for that. Number one, one commentator said, I think it's to get us to laugh at ourselves a little bit. You know, we see this in ourselves and we laugh at ourselves. The other reason it's probably humorous is because the sluggard almost always plays the role of a clown. And that's tragic. So he's not a man to be taken seriously. There's a tragedy that goes along with it as well. Do you have a hard time finishing what you've started? Following through. Diligent man finishes things. That just not, it doesn't mean just the work of his hands that day. It means his marriage. The vows that he took. His commitments his friendships. He takes his words, his promises seriously. He begins things and he finishes things. Number three, the diligent man faces things. He's willing to face things. Look at verse 13, my favorite description of the sluggard. <laughs> this actually occurs a couple times in the Proverbs, the same one. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. Now listen, a lion in the streets was more likely in ancient Israel than it is in modern Dallas. But just barely. I mean, just, I mean like, just, just barely. And, and the idea here is that the writer of Proverbs is asking us to consider all the ridiculous excuses and distractions we use for not engaging in and facing the reality of what God has called us to do. What is your lion in the streets? What is your go-to excuse or distraction that becomes for you a pretext for avoiding work? You know, one way to think about it, what do you click on? I and mean, that's really right today. What do you click on? What do you spend your time clicking on? Clickbaiting. Fantasy football? I'm, now, that could be, we need to be diligent in some of those places, too. I, I get that. But, you know, um, you know, what is it, though? What is the pretext that you use? to avoid what God is calling you to do. The diligent man faces things and he doesn't make excuses about a lion in the streets. And then number four, the diligent man is a man who has the capacity to bless others. The diligent man blesses others. So look with me briefly at chapter 13, 4, and then we're going to skip to 21. They're saying the same thing. I just want you to see that it comes repetitiously throughout the Proverbs. 13, 4 says this, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. All the diligent is richly supplied. 21, the desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and he craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. 
So you see it twice here. What is the sluggard marked by? What is he marked by? What is he marked by? Not rhetorical. What is he marked by? What do you see? Craving. He is marked by his obsession with what he lacks. He doesn't have the capacity to think about anyone else but himself, what he lacks, his own deficiencies. The diligent man, though, is full, and out of his fullness comes the freedom to be generous and to be caring and to be loving to others. The idea here, this is, man, is, is awesome. It's that by your diligence, by your diligence when you leave here, by your diligence even now, as you're diligently listening, engaging, but by your diligence, by your own deep engagement has given you to do, you will bless others whether you see it or not. You will be a blessing to others by your diligence even whether you see it or not. And this is where I think it's important to talk about the formation of our own hearts towards diligence. Yes, practice the habits. Don't delay in starting things. Finish what you start. Face reality. But just consider for a moment how much your own life has been blessed by the diligence of others around you. Just think about that with me. How much have you been blessed by the diligence of others around you? Did you ever have a diligent teacher growing up? Did you think of a diligent teacher that you had? Someone who cared more about the cultivation of your mind, <laughs> caring for you, than just busying the class and getting them to the next bell? Anybody here ever have a diligent coach? You ever play for a diligent coach? Someone who cared not only about wins and losses, but the cultivation of character and the team and the companionship that comes from being a team. Someone that went the extra mile and actually cared about his job. What about a diligent friend? You have someone who, who takes being your friend very seriously. In fact, more seriously than you take being their friend. Someone who prays for you, who calls you, who confronts you, who encourages you, who goes way beyond what you deserve or what you've offered to him. What about a diligent colleague or a diligent boss? Um, last week, I left here and I left my computer, I thought I did, left my computer here couldn't find it anywhere. And that's, a, that's like a big deal for me. Like the anxiety started. And um, I came back here. And I looked all day. Uh, Summer was nice enough. She sent a, an email out to the staff. And that night, still no one could find it. It was in a bag, my, the black bag that I carry around. And, you know, I have it backed up, but it's just a pain. And so, I, you know, I was wrestling with the reality that I'm going to have to erase this thing remotely and, and, and then find a new computer and then put everything back on. And I came back the next morning and... Um, but I'm going to check one more time before I erase it. And I ran into Raimundo. Um, uh, our, our sextons are fantastic, but um, one of the things you'll notice about Raimundo is he's always smiling. Um, there's a lot of joy to him um, in the way he does his work. And he was mopping out here. And I said, Raimundo, um, have you seen my computer? Did you clean up here yesterday? And he said, no. Now listen to me, that would have been enough. That would have been enough. He could have stopped there. He dropped his mop and he came in here. And he searched this whole room with me. He looked under all the tables, under the staging. He unlocked all the doors. Finally unlocked the closet back there. And um, we found my bag. No one else had known where it was. Sitting uh, among the, uh, the stereo equipment back there. Randomly put there. And um, I told him thank you. I say that because um, Raimundo is an example of someone who was not content to just lop off the top of the dandelion. I mean, he dug it up by its roots. And in doing so, it was a tremendous blessing to me. I mean, it was a simple thing for him. It's a tremendous blessing. All the time that it saved me and the fact that he went the extra mile to actually care for me, that's pulling it up by its roots. 
These are, you know, some of the ones I've mentioned, these are the ones we, we think of, that we can think of off the top of our heads. Think of all the things that we missed during the day. Think of the diligent hands that got you here this morning in the car that you drive. The houses that we raise our families in. The clothes that we wear. All that was provided, the diligent hands that prepared the food that we eat every day. Here's what I, here's what I want you to see. I can promise you that your life is a lot better this morning because someone else was diligent, whether you knew it or not. I can promise you that you have more joy in your life because someone else has been diligent for you whether they knew you or not. And of course, what I want you to see this morning is that no one has been more diligent for you than Jesus himself. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, it's an editorial comment that you might read past it if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, is in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And here's what Luke writes. He says, when the days drew near, this is about halfway through the gospel, maybe a little less. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, and Luke says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. What does that mean? It means that when Jesus, when it was time for him to be taken up, Jesus tapped into more diligence. He actually became more diligent. He became more resolved, more focused. What was he focused on? He was focused on Jerusalem, Luke says. Do you know what happens in Jerusalem? He dies. He becomes the atoning sacrifice for the sins of many. And what would be there in Jerusalem? The fruit of the diligence of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be your salvation? Wouldn't it be mine? Jesus resolved himself. He was diligent. He set his face to go to Jerusalem in order to bless you. In order to gain you. And there, not only had Jesus started the work that God had gave him to do, he not only faced the reality that God had put in front of him, but he finished it. He finished it. He was the mark of a diligent man so that we as men could set our faces to the work that God has given us to do in his kingdom. Listen to me. The Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of heaven and earth has been diligent for you. He has employed himself as a worker on your behalf. He is the righteous one who never withholds and who always gives back, even his own son. Diligence is the great multiplier of blessing. It has been given to you in the myriad of ways that you recognize it, culminating in the, in the work of, uh, of the Son on your behalf. But diligence has now also become your calling. And it's the way that you engage the world in order to bless others. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for our time. We do pray, Father, that we would feel both conviction and a measure of, of hope. Thank you, Lord, that you work with... Um, those who aren't diligent, thank you that in your Son, um, we not only gain the righteous one who gives and does not hold back, uh, we gain a vision for what it means to flourish. And so we do pray, God, that you would make us more like him. Um, uh, Lord, help us to turn our face, to set our face to the things that you have given us to do, to engage deeply, to, to engage with wisdom, to know when to say yes and when to say no, Father. And give us much grace for the task, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.